Good morning. Kids are on their way. I hope you're as excited as they are. We got some good stuff today. Continuing our study, answering the question, who is the Christ of Christmas? I'll tell you, friends, if we're going to celebrate this Jesus come Christmas time, we certainly ought to know a few things about him. And I'll tell you what, friends, when I think of Christmas, is not Christmas perhaps the greatest time of year for love? I mean, there's some really great love stories. And I'm not talking about the McLean's uh, reconciliation at the Takahomi Plaza. I'm, I'm talking about the good stuff. You know, walking Melanie through the streets of Chicago, she had the matching hat and the mittens and her big bright brown eyes and a smile as she looked at me with those giant snowflakes. It's the time of love, I'm telling you. Good, good stuff, you know. There was a guy I went to school with. It was about this time of year. His name was Sam, and he had his eye on this girl, you know. And we were having lunch together, and he kind of looked at her out the side of his eye, and then just out of the corner turned to a, a whole turning of his head, and she caught him. And she looked over at him with a big smile. And then as she just completed this big smile, she started to sneeze, she had a glass eye, and as she sneezed, this glass eye popped out of her eye socket. This guy, without even one athletic bone in his body, extended his reach, caught it, bounced on the tip of his finger. I could still see it today, bounced in the palm of his hand. And he simply extended his hand to give her back her eyeball. Well, she was flustered and apologized and said, would you like to come and have lunch with me? Oh, my goodness. He was telling us about this experience, which we still couldn't believe. And he, he, he told us how he had, she was just charming, you know, just kind and sweet. And she said, he, he asked her, he says, uh, you know, you, you are so just so sweet and this is so nice of you. Do you do this to all of the guys that you have lunch with, you know? And she says, no, there was just something about you that caught my eye. Come on, raise your hand if you already saw that coming a mile away. (laughs) It's not a true story. (laughs) But I told it because what I really want to catch your eye this morning. Let it catch you up, all right. Is the virgin birth. If you're going to think about the greatest love story there ever is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And today we're going to talk about how he did it. How he did it. One little snap of the finger and suddenly Jesus is walking on the earth. He certainly had in the past and certainly will again one day. But there was a very special way in which Jesus entered this world. And we're going to talk about the virgin birth of Jesus this morning. And what I want to make ultimately clear here today is that the virgin birth is the means by which God became man in order to reconcile mankind to himself. The virgin birth was the means by which God became man in order to reconcile mankind to himself. So once again, if there's anything I would like for you to catch your eye on today, it's the virgin birth. And what we're going to do, how we're going to address this this morning 
is we're going to look at uh, uh, establish firmly how the Bible clearly teaches the virgin birth of Jesus. And then having clearly laid out the clear Bible teaching, we're going to demonstrate why it matters. We're going to explain what the purpose of this was, of all of the ways that Jesus could have come, why this way. So take a look with me, if you will. Uh, you know, I know many of you have electronic devices, and you're going to get fingerprints all over your screen, or you can just simply look at this big one up here. But we're going to take a look at some prophecies to begin, the prophecies that concern the virgin birth of Christ. You know, God telling beforehand clearly what would happen, and the prophecies concerning the virgin birth start oh so close to the left side of your Bible. All you have to do is turn to Genesis in chapter 3 and verse 15 where we get the first hint, the first hint of the virgin birth. In Genesis chapter 3, 15, <coughs> you may recall that God had created this beautiful garden, placed the man in the midst of the garden, said it's not good that he would be alone. It's that love story all over again. And he made for him a woman. God had given them all of this creation, the beauty, the wonder, this world to be explored, and gave them but one prohibition. Do not eat the fruit that is on the tree in the middle of the garden. You want to play ring around the rosy, build a tree house, climb up and down, use it as a, a target for your football practice. It doesn't matter. Just don't eat the fruit. One prohibition, my friends. But you and I both know, and we're living in a world that demonstrates that sin entered the world. And they disobeyed God. Satan had tempted them, had lied to them, and they fell for it. And part of the result of that was a curse. So I want you to notice in verse 15, part of this curse lays out that God would put enmity. He's addressing Eve at this point. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, actually addressing the serpent, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his feet. Bit of a, a curse here on the serpent. It's not the complete curse, but it's the one we want to focus on right here. And we want to notice some very specific things about this statement. This is a prophecy of what, what was now history for us, but was a prophecy at that time. That Jesus, the seed of the woman, would go to the cross, and there he would be bruised. Bruised his head, but you shall bruise his heel. Yeah, so the, 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 the heel being bruised is Jesus, but in that same time that Jesus was wounded, he crushed the serpent. Victory was gained at the cross. And so here in the midst, but I want you to notice some specific words here. Notice, if you will, here, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, the word that is translated offspring, as you can clearly see in the Hebrew here, is Zerah. Zerah, and the word is seed. Now, there's something biologically not right about that. Because as you and I both know, the men have the seed, the women have the egg. And God shows these words so very clearly in pointing out what would one day come and pointing to a seed, singular, 
the seed of the woman. This biological contradiction with this word seed denotes a a maleness. Men have seed, women have eggs, but God used the phrase the seed of the woman rather than the seed of the man because God is particular about his language and the way he reveals to us what he wants to reveal. So God is particular about this, and we must always recognize that what the Bible says, what it does not say, and what it means. So if the seed would not come from a man, the seed of the man, and a woman has so need, then where would the seed come from? The answer is God. And perhaps we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but just a glimpse of a hint of the virgin birth that is to come. And you say, Pastor, that's kind of weak. Yeah, but we just got started. So let's build on it. Let's build on it. The seed of the woman, emphasizing that, that somehow from this woman will come a man not connected to a man. Well, let's go on to some clear statements. How about Isaiah chapter 7? Isaiah chapter 7 and verses 7 to 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. There was Israel with their back against the wall, enemies surrounding the gate, and they are afraid. And God bringing comfort and encouragement says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, the grave, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you now weary my God also? And therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You won't ask for one, I will give you one. And here it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Those are contradictory terms. The word virgin and conceiving are opposites. And yet this is the mark that is laid out. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this tells us two things about this prophecy and two things about the fulfillment. Notice, if you will, that the, uh, the virgin birth will breed to a son. This speaks of humanness, a son, and you shall call him And notice the word call there does not mean you shall name him, but this is what you're going to call him. And what are we going to call this son? We're going to call him Emmanuel. And we all know that Emmanuel means God with us. Already hints of the God-man's coming. He is God. He is man. He is our Savior. So clear statement here in Isaiah chapter 7, we're looking at prophecies of the virgin birth. But as they say, that's not all. We could also turn a couple of chapters into chapter 9 and verse 6, and we would read this, for unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. This is Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. I want you to notice a distinction here. For unto us a child is born, but a son is given. And the fact that a son is given already speaks of pre-existence. He is already there, but now he is given. A child is born, but a son is given. 
And what about this child can we know? Well, we notice that uh, the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God. What is it that we know about this preexistent son that is given in this birth of this child? He is God. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Then I want you to notice this expression, and on the throne of David, now that is a very, very specific phrase, and it originates from 2 Samuel chapter 7, in which God makes a promise to King David. David, who wanted to build a temple for the Lord, had asked of the prophet, is it okay if I do that? The prophet quickly responded, yes, do as all that your hearts desire. But then the Lord sent a word to this prophet to go back and say, no, you won't build a house for me, but I'm going to build a house for you. And he was talking about a dynasty. And the purpose of it was that only a descendant of David would have the right to sit on the throne and rule. Descendant, that's family That's a tie to humanity, and here we have that deity and humanity all tied up into one. So this virgin birth, we're reading the prophecies about the virgin birth, the distinction, the child is born, but a son is given. He is deity, he will be called mighty God, his humanity points to a descendant of David, who has the right to rule, and of his increase, the government, the peace, there will be no end on a throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice. Hmm. Laying out the prophecies of the Older Testament about the virgin birth. Friends, we're talking about Christmas. These are prophecies of Christmas. When the Son of God would take on flesh and become the Savior of the world. Well, we've laid out here some, I think, very clear evidences of the prophecies of the virgin birth. But what about the realities? Well, let's move on to the fulfillment of these prophecies. I want to encourage you to turn to Luke in chapter 1. Luke and chapter 1. Some of you may have already been looking at this this week, looking about the process of the virgin birth. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. And this will become a familiar account to you, especially at Christmas time, where we find the virgin birth announcement. It begins with an announcement. In the sixth month of the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And he was sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Notice the significance of that phrase, of the house of David, connected to those prophecies. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And by the way, when that statement is made, the Lord is with you, it's not talking about the presence of God, because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. He is in hell. He is in heaven. He's in your bedroom and living room and every room you'll ever be in. 
The statement of the Lord being present is there to bless. When we pray in our prayers, oh God, be with them, God is already there. What we are asking, of course, is that God would be with them to bless them in their endeavors. And so there, laid out for us here, this, this announcement, this announcement of the virgin birth. Oh, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And I want you to notice the focus here on a son. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, the Lord's salvation. And you shall call his name Jesus. But notice not only the focus on son, the focus on deity. Verse 32, and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. In Hebrew, remember a few weeks back, we learned this is El Elyon, God most high, the son of the most high. That is deity, my friends, humanity and deity. We have the God man and the Lord will give to him. And here's that humanity the throne of his father David. Do you notice all of these threads that are tied together? He is a son, he is God, and he will sit on a throne, and he will reign forever and ever. And that's what he says. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so this virgin, the announcement is made that she will give birth to a son, and the son will be the son of God, and he will reign. Here's the announcement. What about the, uh, the actual issue? Let's look over in chapter 2. I mean, we're in Luke 1. Let's look at Luke 2. In Luke 2, we notice uh, the context of this account. The virgin birth takes place, and it begins with some context in those days. Verse 1 of chapter 2 of Luke In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so the context to move this family is taxation. But I want you to notice the location here in verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. This speaks of heritage, family, And the overtones, going to Bethlehem, as they were, has some heavy, heavy, heavy overtones for Christmas. Bethlehem is more than just the sleepy little town that had no room for the babe and, and showed them to the back into the manger. Bethlehem has some serious heavy overtones. First of all, Bethlehem was the location in which the Passover sheep were raised. And it was about this very same time that those little sheep would be born. All over this little community, one babe after the other, in the background, and there in the midst of Bethlehem, the Lamb of God that would be slain before the foundation of the world entered into this place. 
Think of the significance, the richness of what is going on. All of these sheep who were born in order to be a sacrifice. And there is the Son of God entering into humanity to experience the very same thing. And so you have this, this uh, overtones to the Bethlehem, but it was also the city of David, which also have some overtones of kingly lines. Joseph, verse 4, went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, the city of the king, the one who has the right to rule, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was now with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and the virgin gave birth to the Son, who was the Son of God, and who would reign on the throne of his father David forever and ever. But then I want you to notice the humility here. Let's not miss this in all of these feelings of Bethlehem. It was not just the place in which you raised the sheep to die. It was not just the the town that had its roots back in the kingly line of King David. The picture here is one of humility. And while they were there, the time for her came to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. There they took the Son of God wrapped in flesh and they wrapped him in this, this blanket as was the tradition to wrap them tight and laid them in a dog bowl humility, my friends. And it's not just the humility of the manger. It is the humility of the Son of God, whom from the beginning of history has deserved nothing but glory and praise. The one who spoke and brought all things to existence. The one who holds everything together. They put him in a feeding trough. And the humility was more than just the trough. It was that he was now wrapped in flesh. He humbled himself and took the form of a servant, as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself. And that is the picture of Christmas. The virgin birth. It took place. Luke lays it out here for us, the context of taxation, the location in Bethlehem, rich with overtones of sheep born to be slaughtered, and the birth of a king, and his humility in coming. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him, no place for them in the inn. But what does it all mean? Okay, we we laid it out here. The the big question now is, so what? I mean, what difference does this make? I mean, why did we endure the last uh, 15 minutes of looking at prophecies and reading the story we've heard so many times? Why does it matter? Let's explain it. 
Uh, let's, let's make sure we understand what it means. I mean, how, how did the virgin birth take place? It was accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, uh, in, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, we read that now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. And Matthew gives us a little information. How did it happen? When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child from the Holy Spirit. It was the Spirit of God at work. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. How did this virgin birth take place? By the power of the Spirit of God. Yeah, but what about the body? Well, that's Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, we find that the human nature of Christ was created by God. In verse 1 of Hebrews 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of a true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The conversation in Hebrews 10 is a comparison or a contrast of Jesus with the the Judaic uh, mosaic system of sacrifice for those who are tempted to go back, go back into sacrificing all of these animals and the incense and all of these things in order to stay in a relationship with God. My friends, the contrast is made here that Jesus is a better sacrifice. And so this conversation here, this argument, we would say, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 1 to 5 begins with this, this shadow. These, these, these sacrifices were a shadow of Jesus. The reality of these sacrifices pointed to the final sacrifice of Jesus. In verse 2, otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience sin? And the sacrifices (coughs) were ineffective because they needed to be offered over and over and over again. But Christ, once for all. Here is the argument being laid out. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of our sin every year. For it is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, notice this. He said, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired. But notice this, the night before Christmas. The night before Christmas. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, (laughs) Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Think about that on the night before Christmas. A body was prepared in which Jesus would take on flesh and live among us and be insulted and be ignored and ultimately be crucified. The body was prepared for him. Talking about the virgin birth, how did it happen? The virgin birth of Christ was accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. His human nature of Christ was created by God. 
and the virgin birth of Christ, let's remember this, was not the origin of his person, but the entrance of his person into human life. The birth that we celebrate on Christmas was not the origin of his person, but the entrance of his person into human life. The virgin birth. Remember, a child is born, but a son is given. So what's the purpose? What's the purpose of the virgin birth? Well, you, uh, you may know that the purpose is to reveal God. The ultimate revelation of who God is, is Jesus. You want to know something about God? Study Jesus. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, a well-known verse lays it out for us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What you have seen in Jesus is what is known about God. The purpose, number one, is to reveal God to us. Purpose number two is to bridge the gap between God and man, as has been our purpose in preaching this series, is to understand that Christmas is about God sending His Son to reconcile mankind to Himself. Bridging the gap between God and man, which is what Paul lays out for Timothy in chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Three purposes for the virgin birth. The first one is to reveal God. The second is to bridge the gap between God and man. God and man. And then the third here we notice is to take on the nature of man in order to die in their place. To take on the nature of man in order to die for them. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, we read, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Talking about the incarnation of the Son of God. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when he is tempted, he is also he is able to help those who are being tempted. So a twofold in that last one. This virgin birth was to take on flesh, to be made like we are in order that he might be a great high priest. Whatever it is you endure, he endured it. Whatever temptation you face, he faced it. He is not a high priest beyond the heavens that cannot understand. He is a great high priest, but he is also the perfect sacrifice for you and I. He took on humanity in order that he might die for humanity. Purpose of the virgin birth. To take on the nature of man in order to die for them. So let's wrap it up, friends. Let's wrap it up here. Sermon in a sentence. The virgin birth is the means by which God became a man 
in order to reconcile mankind to himself. And let's not leave this just as some theological statement, friends. Let's make it personal. The virgin birth is the means by which God became a man in order to reconcile you to God. He went to the cross for you. He came for you. He died for you. This is the greatest love story there will ever be, my friends. One of the most powerful verses to me as I think about salvation is Romans 5.8, that God demonstrated his love for us, for you. And that while we were yet sinners, rebellious, sinful, selfish, Christ died for us. He died in our place that we might have life, that we might be reconciled to God, to experience his love, his purpose, his hope, and one day, his very presence. He loved you. That's why he came. That's what Christmas is all about. Friends, don't fall for the lie again this year. We do it every year. I get excited about the things And I ask you this, do you even remember what you got last year? You're so excited about these things, and you don't even remember them a year later. Friends, make Christmas about what truly matters, what you will remember from year after year, day after day, moment after moment. It's all about Jesus. So set aside some time to worship the God-man. He is God. He's not just a nice fellow that came to earth to live a nice life. He is the God who took on flesh in order to die in our place. And when you set aside some time to worship, to express the value you attribute to him, make sure you include some gratitude. Friends, if Christmas morning when we celebrate the virgin birth does not involve first taking time for the love of God to send His Son, for the Son to freely come to die in our place, we've missed the purpose of Christmas. And perhaps you can get a head start on a great new year. By beginning to trust Christ today. If you're here today, you've heard about Jesus, you know he died on the cross for our sin. We talked a bunch about Christmas and the virgin birth. But the most important decision you can make today isn't about what you're buying your friends for Christmas. It's about what you do with the greatest gift of Christmas there is. He died in your place. He simply asked that you trust in him. Trust looks a lot like obedience, my friends. Trust says, where do you want me to go when I will go? You die in my place, I'll ask you to forgive me. Give me a new life and help me to walk in it. This is the greatest gift of Christmas, my friends. Don't leave it under the tree.